Well, amen. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. In 2011, a man by the name of Mel Schwartz wrote an article published in Psychology Today, and it was entitled, Why Is It So Important to Be Right? And in the article, he said, from the more personal and mundane battles over who said what in the midst of an argument, to the larger issues of politics, religion, abortion, health care, gun control, or climate change, being right is mandated. It quickens our pulse, causes us to shout, and can sever relationships. The very fact that we mindlessly choose to win an argument at the cost of damaging our relationships points to something terribly amiss and assures that no one is actively listening. If we need to be right and we have differing points of view, that obviously makes you wrong. doesn't exactly sound like the stuff of friendships, let alone romantic relationships. This compulsion to be right sidetracks our lives and impedes our learning and happiness? Why is it so vital to be right? Well, because being wrong is accompanied by a sense of humiliation and failure. But is this a given? Does it have to be this way? Could we accept being incorrect without any loss or embarrassment? And he answers his own question. He says, not as long as the issue of right and wrong is tied to our sense of self and identity. I wish I could say that nine years later that we were in some ways less emphatic about being right. But I think it's even worse today. I dare say it's more of an issue today than it's ever been. And a man by the name of David Zoll agrees he's a Christian. And so he reframes it a little differently than Mr. Schwartz. He says that our desire to be right is so strong that, and I quote, things such as dating, parenting, eating, or voting have been turned into vehicles of our own self-justification. He says people are on a contemporary quest for self-justification in things such as marriage, work, technology, and politics that he calls an overall spirit of performanceism. His point is we have a deep-seated need To be right before God and before others and before ourselves. And we take a no holds bar approach to making that happen on our own. And of course, if if that goes unchecked, this quest for self-justification turns into very pious virtue signaling. We turn ourselves into prosecutors Juries and judges in the courts, and we're in the spiritual and moral courts of appeal. And we're quick to offer unsolicited advice, and we repeat ourselves over and over like a vinyl record that can't get past the scratch. Only about half of you even get that. And like Mr. Schwartz said, we 
We definitely don't listen. And really in the end, all we're doing, if we're honest with ourselves, all we're really doing in those instances is playing the role of Savior, both for ourselves and for others. And if we're honest, this type of lifestyle just wears us out. So tonight, for all of you who are tired and in need of rest, for all who desire to get off the treadmill of this performance-ism, for all who need relief from, from the anxiety created by thoughts and feelings of rejection and potential rejection or impending rejection or failure, for all who need to step away from this burden of saving yourself and other people, and for all those who have been, maybe you've been receiving this endless and ongoing relentless judgment from others. Let's take a few minutes and allow Hebrews 10 to wash over us. Let's just bask as it, as it washes over us. For it's here that we, we understand exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew 11. Right? In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And that is what we desperately need, for His yoke is easy. His burden is light. The passage tonight in Hebrews 10, I'm going to break down like this, or I have broken it down this way. We're going to look at the problem explained in verses 1 to 4 and 11. The provision established in verses 5 to 10 and 12 to 14. And then the promise extended in verses 15 to 18. And there is an outline in the back of your bulletin if you desire to take notes and follow along. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in these moments, please encourage us through your word. Assure us of the good news of the gospel. May we see Jesus. And may we find rest for our souls. Use me as you see fit. Speak through your word that endures forever. And it is in His name and for the sake of His church that I pray. Amen. And amen. Well, you're not going to be surprised to find out that this, the problem is the same that it has been since Hebrews 7. The problem has not changed. The Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, and the tabernacle that here he describes with one word, law... All of those things is all of those things are and the law is nothing but a shadow of something else. There were they were all as I was telling the children they were all pictures they were sketches they were outlines of something greater. Everything that the ceremonial law and everything that the priesthood and the tabernacle while real they were only outlines of a greater reality, a, a greater substance. And they pointed, all of them pointed to what the writer of Hebrews calls greater or good things to come. 
Because they as mere forms and shadows were unable to do what needed to be done. Again, it's something that we have heard for several chapters now. But each time driving home the point of what we need to understand. We've seen this really even beyond chapter 7. We need to go back to August of last year, or actually September, when we began our study of Leviticus. Because it's been since then that we have heard over and over that for a holy God to dwell with his people, they in fact needed to be holy, which means they needed to be perfect. And the problem was, they weren't. They needed to be holy and unstained and unblemished, and requ- which required perfect obedience, but they didn't have it. Because of their unholiness, because of their lack of perfection, due to their disobedience, they needed to be forgiven of their sin, they needed to be cleansed of the guilt that was theirs due to their sin... They needed to be cleansed of their impurity, and that required the shedding of blood and the loss of life. And unfortunately, again, this was not fully, thoroughly, or completely accomplished through the ceremonial law. Rather than provide the forgiveness and cleansing that was needed, the law simply reminded the people day after day, year after year, that they were still in their sin. Their sin remained. The fact, the writer says, the fact that they were repeated day after day, and the fact that the priests never sat down was proof that what was needed was not being accomplished. What they were doing was insufficient. And so the the result is that the people were consciously, always consciously aware of their sin. And not just in the sense of, well, I'm a sinner, but they were constantly under the burden of the guilt that they were carrying. They knew that the guilt remained. They felt the guilt of their sin. It was a constant reminder. There was never complete rest. There was never complete uh, relief. And they were actually always under judgment. Judgment loomed over them. And they knew it. And they could feel it. In watching these things happen. perpetually. Because had it worked, had it done what it needed to do, they would have stopped. The sacrifices would have stopped. The priests would have sat down. And so the reason that that it all kept going was in verse 4. The writer says, because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Which brings us to the good things to come. What was the provision established? And we find that in verses 5 to 10 and 12 to 14. In verse 5, the writer says, Consequently, Christ came into the world. Christ came into the world. Christ was the one to whom everything else pointed. Christ was the one who was the substance and made up of his person and work, made up the substance of the good things to come. His salvific work on Calvary, his priestly work in the Holy of Holies, not made with hands, there in heaven, cast this huge shadow backwards. It was him and his work that was the greater reality of the tabernacle priesthood and sacrifices, of which they were only those outlines. 
He was the fullness of the sketch. And what the writer does is he, he, he uses Psalm 40 to, to really buttress his argument. He, he wants to drive this point home that he's been making. And he goes to Psalm 40. It's a, a psalm written by David. But I believe by the illumination and inspiration of the Spirit, he attributes these words to the Lord Jesus. And he does so to show that what took place at the incarnation was all a part of the plan of redemption. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And what the writer is saying is the eternal Son of God knew and had known from the, from the beginning that the Father desired obedience from His people because it was obedience that pleased Him. But due to man's sin, and in order right, to point to the Lord Jesus, to, to point to His ultimate plan of redemption that would be... The experience through the Son, the Father put those offerings and sacrifices in place. But those sacrifices and offerings weren't sufficient. They didn't do what ultimately needed to be done and what He ultimately desired. So Christ said that He came to do exactly what the Father wanted. I have come to do what you want. He is the eternal Son, humbled Himself, emptied Himself of His glory. The glory that He was due, He took on the body that had been prepared for Him, took on flesh, became a man, and dwelt among us for the purpose of being completely obedient through death on the cross. Verse 10 says that the will of the Father included dying on the cross for the purpose of sanctifying or setting apart his people. So in other words, Christ, we've, we've said this, we've heard this, Christ came to die. The purpose of Christmas is defined in Easter. Not only did Christ's sacrifice pay fully for the sins of his people... His death on the cross also was the culmination of a life lived in complete obedience. It had always been that way. And he did so, and, and I say it always did that way, or it always been that way because he did so just as the, all the Old Testament, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets had all attested to. The word had pointed to that. And because of what he had done, because of what Christ has done, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, has been made obsolete. And it's been made obsolete because he, having accomplished what needed to be accomplished, they didn't need to go back and didn't need to revive the law or didn't need to continue in the law because it did not do what needed to be done. And so if you have what needs to be done, why do you still need what didn't, what, what, what couldn't do it? But what did he accomplish specifically? 
In verse 12, the author says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, it's really important that we understand the past, present, and future aspects of what Christ accomplished. And they're all right here. In verse 12, we see a past completed action. He says, Christ offered a single sacrifice for sins, and he sat down. Accomplished, done. We also see in verse 14 that there's this past completed action that has an ongoing effect. He says he has perfected for all time. So it's something that continues to to show or, or continues to have an effect. And then lastly, we see in verse 14 that there is something that is presently occurring. We are being sanctified. Now, what the writer is saying is this. Christ in obedience to the Father, offered himself as a sacrifice once for all, one time, never to be repeated. And as a result, all those who look to Christ in faith for their salvation have been declared and made perfect and holy in the sight of the Father. It's done. It does not have to be repeated again. Those who are unholy have been cleansed by his blood and are now set apart to God as holy. That's Leviticus language. But there's also a process that is continuing and going on in which those who have been perfected are being currently Being set apart. They have been set apart and they are being set apart. In other words, those who have been set apart, it's the language I use with the kids, those who have been set apart are in the process of becoming who they have been set apart or declared to be. And so if we put theological language, we would say that Christians have been sanctified positionally and we have also been sanctified or are being sanctified progressively. There's an already and a not yet to our sanctification. But the, uh, there's an already and a not yet. And the not yet is so, uh, no, the already is so certain that the not yet is just as certain. What was accomplished was, was done and complete one time and for all and was so decisive that even the not yet, even where we are going is just as certain. Which is why Jesus said it. Done. Which brings us to the final point. The promise extended. In verses 15 to 18, the writer fortifies this argument. He's already done this back in chapter 8. But he comes back again and refers to Jeremiah 31 again, appealing to the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the, of the Old Testament. He, he pulls out the, the, the passage in Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant. And he does a couple of things. First, he reiterates that God... 
who once wrote the law on stone tablets, has promised to write the law internally on the hearts and minds of his people. He's promised a change of mind. He's promised a change of thoughts. He's promised a change in understanding on the part of his people. He's promised the ability to discern spiritual things. He's promised a change of heart and a change of desire and affections. And he's, he's changed or promised a change in the want to. And he promises to do, basically he promises to do what the law never could do in and of itself. Which was bring about internal change. An internal change that of course results in the law, fulfilling of the law and striving to fulfill the law is no longer being burdensome. So he promises the ability and the desire to obey, which is what pleases him. But secondly, he also promises complete forgiveness. He extends that promise. The Mosaic Covenant provided a temporary covering. But the New Covenant provided full and final payment for sin through the blood of Christ, through the Messiah, the one who paid that once for all sacrifice for the sins of his people. It's through the blood It's through the blood that the Father sees His people and no longer sees their sin. It's through the blood of Christ that the Father sees you and me and no longer our sin because our sin has been cast from us as far as the east is from the west. And, And the writer adds and says that even in Jeremiah 31, God will not remember the sins of His people anymore. So what the new covenant does is it promises that new desire and ability to obey as well as the forgiveness that we need when we don't. He does it all. So in the words of Richard Phillips, he says, Christ is seated And enthroned in a position of rest like that of God on the seventh day of creation. Unbelievers may deny him, mock him, and exult in their apparent freedom from his lordly rule. But all the while he sits enthroned, waiting at this present age, as this present age runs its course. And we can afford to wait, because where sins have been forgiven, there is no longer any offering for sin. And no longer any threat to the salvation of those who look to him in faith. I'm going to read that last line again. There's no longer any threat to the salvation of those who look to him in faith. So in light of this passage, I would hope that every one of us tonight would keep something in mind. Okay? If you're looking to Christ alone... For your salvation. If you're looking to Christ alone. By faith for your salvation. You are right. Before God. You're right before God. You've been justified. And you've not only been declared. Not guilty. But you have been declared. Holy. You have been set apart. For holy use. You have been cleansed. Of your sin and your guilt. Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgotten 
by the Lord. And all of that has been received by grace through faith in Christ, who willingly and thoughtfully and obediently laid himself down to be the once for all sacrifice for sin. And his record of perfect obedience has been credited to your account as well. You are sitting tonight in the robe of righteousness of Christ. Therefore, three things. One, none of us have any need to be right. Not in the way we were talking about it when we began. Right? Having been made right before God, we can rest in His righteousness now. We can rest in His righteousness and not in how right we are before others. People cannot threaten our salvation. Our being wrong does not threaten our salvation, just as our being right does not secure it. Our identity is not in if we are right or wrong, our identity is in Christ. And being in Christ and right in the eyes of God should remove the anxiety of any failure or rejection. And should actually free us to be wrong and it not be the end of the world. It should also free us, in the words of Paul to the Romans, to love one another with brotherly affection. We should be able to outdo one another in showing honor and to live in harmony with one another. We we have we never have to be wise in our own sight, and we don't have to, or, or we can live peaceably with all. And rather than battle one another, we can encourage, to writing to the church at Thessalonica, we can encourage one another and build one another up. Secondly, and I was talking to the Hamlets about this earlier tonight, we, there is no need for any of us to add to the work of Christ because there is nothing that can be added to it. Not a thing. And any attempt to do, and Mandy thinks this is a little strong, but I'm going to say it anyway. Any attempt to do so is simply evidence that we don't actually believe that the work of Christ was sufficient. In other words, we believe that it was insufficient, and we are the only ones that can make up the difference. And really... Seeking to add to or in some way justify ourselves through our own work is not being more spiritual. It's being arrogant. And so very simply, we we must stop it. We should should forsake and and repent of our self-righteousness as well as our sin. And then thirdly, because of what Christ has done, 
Because of our standing and our position and and because our future is sure, we have every reason to offer now not sacrifices of the blood of bulls and goats, but sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving in our worship. Sacrifices of praise as well as offering ourselves as living sacrifices who out of gratitude seek to obey. And to do the will of the Father because that is what pleases Him. We, we should be striving in our becoming to be who He has declared us to be. We should be exhibiting the fruit of both our positional and progressive sanctification that is being worked out within us by the Spirit. Again, in the words of Richard Phillips. He says, those who possess faith in Christ simply cannot go on living as they did before. We are different because of what has happened. Not by a power that is from us, but a power that is from heaven. Where Christ reigns for us and in us. To know him and serve him. To grow in his likeness must become the great ambition of our lives. May it be so. Let's go to the Lord. Well, Father, would you now, by your word and spirit, help us to see and respond May we rest in and trust in and place our hope in and anticipate seeing Jesus. We thank you for your word. Plant it deep within our hearts. Bring forth fruit. For your glory and the sake of Christ and his church. In his name we pray. Amen. And amen.